Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is a podcast from Minute Media. About this trade, enough that you guys went for it. Um, yeah, I mean, we wanted to get an offensive player in here, um, and we think we did that in uh, in landing Bogey, and uh, you know, somebody that's really excelled against right-handed pitching. And you know, I think we all kind of know that two-thirds of the pitchers we face are right-handed, um, and uh, so he could be a presence in uh, in the order. Just a guy that. I want to win. Um, I'm super competitive. I've been that way since I've been a kid. And um, to be wanted by a team that, you know, has one goal in mind, and that's to win the World Series, um, it makes you feel good and, uh, you know, makes you want to play. I just, just going to bring it every day. Um, and that's kind of what I, kind of what I focus on. You know, there's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days. I'm going to have good at bats. I'm going to have bad at bats. But I think the one thing you control is being a good teammate and, you know, making winning your number one priority. And, uh, that's the one thing that I can promise is, you know, I'm going to play with energy and try to be a good person every single day and uh, making winning, you know, the number one priority. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, July the 24th, 2022. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can show an Apple podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, and I want to welcome in the good folks from the Fan-Sided Podcasting Network, as well as RisingApple.com. Well, 
Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. I come to you Sunday uh, late morning, early afternoon. Obviously, I know the Mets are playing the Padres later tonight, and usually we do a Monday morning show uh, with the late ESPN games. I think this is the last ESPN. Well, I shouldn't say that. They changed the schedule. I think this is one of the last ESPN games they're on. Uh, I shouldn't say that because things change. And here's what I decided. Uh, A lot could change. This show could go stale. There's rumors out there about the Mets and Josh Bell. Obviously, right before the ball game on Friday, they acquired Daniel Vogelback. You heard him coming into the program. I'm not sure we could dedicate an hour on Daniel Vogelback. I saw like emergency podcast out there about Vogelback. I'm like, "Ah, I don't know. I mean, to me, that's a little bit much. But we have a lot to talk about. And joining me for the first time, you guys know him. You've seen him on SNY's. Uh, baseball night in New York, as well as the Ringer, and you may know him from WFAN, John Jastrzemski, the pride of Staten Island when it comes to our business, maybe Pete Davidson in the Page Six world, but for us and what we do here, it's John Jastrzemski. He'll be joining me in just a little bit, and we're going to get into not just trade deadline stuff, because there's a lot of connections here between the Mets and the Yankees, specifically with the whole Juan Soto situation, but is the Subway Series back off of life support, because we've talked about it a lot on this program. And if you remember last September, the uh, September 11th anniversary weekend when the Mets and the Yankees played, I talked a little bit about how that last game, Lindor, the chirpiness, uh, I think it was Stanton and what have you, with Javi Baez at that time in the in, in the lineup. Uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a chance to get that juice back. Uh, you heard Mike Francesa talk about it. Uh, great segment, by the way, with, with Francesa. And uh, Buck Showalter on Francis's podcast earlier in the week. And, um, uh, you know, what will Tuesday bring at City Field? Will we see the juice? Obviously, the Mets are in a race. Obviously, now it's tightened even more with the Braves winning and the Mets losing a couple of tough games to the Padres coming out of the break. So we'll talk about that. We'll get into the deadline, the Juan Soto business, and away you go. Here's where I'll start because everybody was asking me, saying, you know, Mike, are you going to do something about the MLB draft and the Mets? And and the answer is probably we should examine this as we get away from the signings and whatnot. The problem with the draft is you have probably, from our perspective, a Mets perspective over at SNY, the guy, he's been on the show, Joe DeMeo, who does a fantastic job. There's nothing Joe does that I could do better when it comes to the draft and it comes to evaluating talent. By all means... I have reached out to people that I know in the business that I trust, and they feel the Mets have done really well with uh, their picks. Uh, I I have heard, and I don't know if this is stale news because this is days ago, that there is some gap with the third-round pick, Brandon Sprout, and the Mets' valuation and what he wants. I think he was a little surprised that he was picked by the Mets. A lot of times when these kids are picked— there's already been dialogue about the signability. I have I, I've heard that maybe that wasn't a hundred percent the case with, uh, with 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 Sprout. So whatever, I mean that could be stale news. Take that for what it's worth. I have no idea who Jet Williams will be if he'll be Jose Altuve, Kevin Parada, whether he's a catcher or um, a DH first baseman. I think it's really cool that MLB makes a big deal about a segment of their business that clearly has a lot of media opportunities, fan interest. With that comes advertising dollars and interest in the sport. What's funny is we hear about baseball dying, and we heard about how I think the All-Star game had like less than 8 million people watch it. But then just a few days earlier, you have all these people talking about picks that, quite honestly, I mean, look at Brandon Nimmo. I use this example all the time. Uh, 
Brandon Nimmo was drafted in 2011. At that time, I was running a pretty popular NYBaseballDigest.com website that is now defunct. And, you know, we talked about draft picks all the time. Matt Harvey back in the day. Uh, I mean, I remember the first, like, you know, Eddie Kuntz, the controversy. When is Eddie Kuntz going to be brought up? And he's the, is he the next closer when uh, he hands the ball over to Billy Wagner? Can he come in and have an impact on the pennant races? And, and we all know where that went. But we have no idea, especially with a kid like Jet Williams out of high school, who probably is five years away. We have no idea. Uh, what these guys are. And I can't tell you. I don't know if Kevin Parada is going to be a solid DH type or a catcher or Jet Williams is going to be a mini Jose Altuve. Uh, will any of these arms uh, leap into the upper echelons of the system or provide what you just traded in Colin Holderman the next low-cost, potentially high-leverage bullpen arm? Because that's important too. What I do know is the draft is important for the Mets and I have a lot of uh, uh, faith in Tommy Tanis and Mark Tremuda, and I think the Mets, there was a, you probably have seen it already, but they did a graph of wins above replacement on draft picks over the last decade, and the Mets were in the top five. I think they might have been two, if I'm not mistaken, one or two. I can't remember. That's impressive. Now, just because you have the most wins above replacement, you have one impact player like Pete Alonzo, and that pumps it up because as much as they've had uh, draft picks, the guys that they've traded... I mean, has really anybody come back to haunt them, per se? I mean, uh, there's probably some under the rail, like like Krismet, uh, uh, who's over in San Diego, nice bullpen arm, and uh, he's having some success over there. He's with the Mets organization a while. So that's really, I mean, that's a perfect example where the Mets are at. Can they develop some of these kids to be component parts of their roster? Because let's face it, the big talk last week, it came down as we were doing the show, and it hasn't died down over the last week, is... Can the Mets get in and make a big splash and get Juan Soto? You've seen over the last couple of days, and put the catching situation aside, because we've talked about that. The Mets catching situation, when they're healthy, Nito and McCann, it's about calling the game, it's about catch and throw, it's about managing the staff. We're not expecting offense there. Would I like them to be better than a good hitting pitcher? Absolutely, I'd love them to be better. Is that what I'm worried about the rest of the year? No. But when you have the dead spot in the lineup at the DH spot, that it has been with Dom Smith and J.D. Davis. And to me, the Mets' final straw, not that Dom was going to survive the, the, the deadline being the an everyday DH type. but And I'm not trying to pick on the guy, but spraining your ankle going back in the second base on a rather routine play in Chicago, to me is like, if I'm the Mets, I'm like, I've had it with this guy. You know, we've, we've sat here for a couple of years. We've waited for him to be the player that we were all we're told he was during the pandemic season. From an offensive standpoint, uh, he's never any time other than that small sample size. Even before that, when he was an everyday player in July of 2019, look at the splits. Go to baseball reference. He's never hit. He was hitting about a buck 80, buck 90 before he got hurt in July of 2019. And there's always something that happens. Is he a good first baseman? Yeah, I think he's got a good glove. Is he a good guy? He handled uh, you know, his improvements on his weight and the fact that basically Alonso not only took the job from me, ripped it from him, and he was a good bench player. I know he said he would have preferred to go to San Diego in the trade for Hosmer that fell through, and when it didn't, he didn't make any problems. I know from an off-the-field standpoint, people love him for his political uh, uh, points of view, and that's fine. That's their prerogative. Uh, I think there's a lot more to that, and none of that should have factored in to keeping him around, and I think it did, and I blame Sandy Alderson for that, because if it was a baseball move and a baseball move only, and I know that they also had to factor in 
the owners coming in and and payroll and you would like a somewhat cost effective bat that still had arbitration years left. I think if they were honest and they kind of took the off the field politics out of it, anybody that's a baseball person would have said trade the guy while his value is high. And you might have got a nice haul on it. You might have been able to keep Andres Jimenez maybe if you put him in the Cleveland deal for Lindor. I'm speculating on that. I don't know. But think about how having Jimenez there, you know, I know Guillaume is a nice glove, but Jimenez is an all-star. And I always liked Jimenez as a component player. He's even better than a component player. He might be a nice, you know, I said Raphael for Kyle. He might be better than that. We'll see how that all turns out. So, you know, what I do know about everything here is that you are going to need to restock that farm system because if you didn't learn from the Vogelback trade that it is going to be, and I said this a few weeks ago, it is not going to be a deadline without pain. Are you serious about winning a championship? Clearly you guys are. I see the comments on Twitter. I see the stress, the panic, the anxiety. It's that time of the year where everybody's waiting for the roof to cave in. Buck even talked a little bit about this with Francesa. I really encourage you to listen to Buck with Francesa on the Francesa podcast. They are very well aware of the Paul, the cloud, the Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, the yoke, whatever you, whatever analogy I've used for years and years that I said a special group and a special GM and a special owner and a special manager are going to need to battle as they try to erase the specter of 1986. That's still, even with the Keith Hernandez ceremony, still to this day hangs over them. Um, you know, they're going to need a special group of guys. And, and part of that process is from the front office bringing in the right player to get them over the top and understanding the cost or the opportunity cost of doing that. Now, I have said this since last week, and the more I hear, I listen to Scott Boris, and I encourage you that with John Heyman and Joel Sherman when they were out in L.A. I've listened to Billy Epler. I think he was on Sirius XM Radio. I've listened, I mean, when it comes to, here's how you have to look at the rumor mill. There's the rumors, which I'm not saying are fake, but they're information. It's like the telephone game. Remember that. Rumor mill is the telephone game. Unless you're talking to Billy Epler directly or someone very close to him, and even at that, things could change on a dime. It always could change. It could be two-week-old news you're getting. It could be leaked because there's an agenda in the negotiations. We know that. I mean, look, the Soto stuff was leaked because the Nationals want to leak it so that their fans knew, hey, we, we've, we're doing all we can to keep this generational talent. When he's traded, it ain't our fault. So you have to look at the rumor mill. You have to be logical and understand where the team is. And, and then you've got to take the breadcrumbs. And what I mean by that is listen to interviews because although a, a GM or in, in cases of Sandy Alderson, who seems to be doing a lot of the up to this point, and you'll probably hear more from Billy Epler, who really hasn't talked a ton to the media at all since spring training. Really since he, it's funny, hasn't talked a lot to the media since he came in other than his initial foray. It's been Sandy, it's been Cohen, it's really been Buck. I mean, think about that. And that's probably the value of bringing a veteran like Buck Showalter who can handle that and do a really good job with that. You have to take the breadcrumbs that are out there. The Mets do not want to give up high-end prospect capital. They keep going back to Pete Crow Armstrong, at least Sandy does, for Baez. And I don't have any regrets on that trade because at the time I thought it was a good trade. They needed a bat. I thought maybe it was a guy they could pair with Lindor that could 
you know, his buddy, high-end defensive player, dynamic player, run the bases. I think he's a guy seeing what's going on in Detroit that needs to be in a good winning environment to get the best out of him because he's an energy player. And, you know, got a kid that had like seven at-bats that they had a, a drafted during the pandemic season. Anybody you draft during that pandemic, you know, because of the way that sports was shut down, you have no idea what they're going to be. I was like, come on. What, are we going to cry over this? Yeah, he's having a good year. He's still in like single A, high A, whatever it is. Long way to go. So, but the Mets are, you know, Alvarez has this special talent and you heard about Beatty and, you know, maybe Vientos could be a low-cost DH option to pair with uh, Volgaback. And I think that's part of where they're also got to look long-term and that's what ties into all this. So you look at the Mets, they have a lot of payroll commitment coming up with free agents. They have all, that's going to be a big topic. Diaz and Nimmo and maybe DeGrom and, and so on. And they're going to need to compete now in the future. So they're going to need to invest more in guys that right now are more cost-effective. They're going to need to fill other parts of their roster because you can't be like the 2007-2008 Mets, maybe to a certain degree the 2006 Mets where you're good you know, from 1 to 10, 12, 13, and then the fringes you fall off because you're, you're trying to do it on a budget and you don't have a good farm system. So a lot of their moves are there. So the breadcrumbs to me say the Mets don't want to give up big-time prospect capital. The breadcrumbs to me say, that's out there in the media, say that the Nationals want the Mets to pay a premium because they don't want to see Soto across in the same division. I think that the best package should be what you go for in a situation like Soto. This is not trading Jay Bruce. You know, if you're talking about trading Jay Bruce for six of one, half dozen another, why do I want to see Jay Bruce across town like when the Mets didn't want to deal with the Yankees? Now, maybe that was, and from what I've heard, that was a really good deal the Mets turned down. And and I don't know who was in it, but I think there would have been some useful big league pieces that the Mets could have used at that time that would have been an upgrade over what they had in the farm system. Does it matter now? But in that situation, they don't want to see Jay Bruce win a championship across town. Juan Soto's different. You know, Jacob DeGrom, my issue with tra- trading Jacob DeGrom to the Yankees, the Yankees weren't willing to offer anything. And I wasn't sure the Yankees' prospects historically are the best option. But if they are, send DeGrom over. Send Syndergaard over if there's really... I mean, history tells you the Yankees don't typically trade guys that pan out and, and have an impact. They keep those guys. So I think it's all foolish, but the Nationals are going to be a tough trading partner here. And there's a complexity to Soto. And that complexity is what the Mets are facing, which is long-term payroll management has to be worked out because you still don't know what DeGrom and Nimmo and Diaz, that market's going to look like. Um, you have to fill out a roster. So if you pull and you start adding guys like Peterson and McNeil to the deal, so let's say they want younger, maybe early arbitration year young players to fill their roster that potentially can be traded for more assets as they get closer to being a contender or be part of a potential contender in three years, um, you're going to be pulling that from what you need now to win a championship. You traded David Peterson, not that he's an old, you know, uh, hey, listen, not going to make or break a deal for Juan Soto, but you need that depth. And the Nationals don't have a ton to give you back. I mean, even this rumored deal for Josh Bell that's running around out there where the Mets give up uh, you know, an outfield prospect and a pitching prospect, potentially, uh, for Josh Bell, and they get back Josh Bell and a reliever. I mean, look at the Nats' bullpen. I mean, what are you going to get back? You know, Tyler Rainey's on the 60-day DL. Uh, you know, you have Finnegan. You know, you have a couple of interesting arms there. But none of them are like difference makers. They're not David Robertson. So that's more likely. I mean, to me, if you're going to trade a Jake Magnum or Khalil Lee or Jose Buto, and it's possible you have to look at um, 
you know, guys like Peterson. There was no world a week ago where I thought you'd have to give a Colin Holderman for Daniel Vogelback. But like Billy Epler said, that was their line in the sand. And the Pirates sat there and said, I could control this guy. I could put him back out of the market. He's arbitration eligible. I could put him back out there next year or in the offseason and get as good, maybe better. But you need to win a championship this year, and you need him. Because against right-handed pitching, he is a top 10, 15, 20 offensive player. And, you know, crying over spilt milk, but I think that's where the transition and the lockout and the chaos of hiring a GM, I think you're seeing more and more the Mets did not do a good enough job around the fringes of the roster because guys like Robertson and Vogelback and and Chafin, they could have been had for money, which the Mets have plenty of. But they decided to go with what they had, and, and there could be a lot of reasons for that. And now there's going to be pain. And the pain is you're going to have to give up a piece. And that pain is not Alvarez pain or Beatty pain or McNeil pain or pain from, you know, who, know, who, who knows who else. It's a pang. It's like, hey, this stinks. I mean, yeah, I like Vogelback. He's a top, you know, run creator. Uh, if you put him against righties, not overall. If you put him up there, he's elite. He's like Josh Bell against righties. But you had to give up who could be a high leverage option in a bullpen that has pretty much the entire bullpen going into free agency and can be expensive to bring back, especially the closer. So we knew this was coming. So get ready and buckle up. This team needs a bat. I think Vogelback, along with uh, a righty compliment, which should be J.D. Davis, but he has not shown, even with his RBI single last night, he has not shown any ability to hit the ball. I know he's hitting the ball hard according to metrics. The process, the eyes tell me he is not an answer. And that disappoints me because of what kind of uh, hitter he was in the back half of 2019, but that is a long time ago. And, you know, whether it's a Brandon Drury or another component type, Trey Mancini, who still, I mean, Brandon Drury, you could have had. I mean, I liked him as a bench player. Did I think he was this good? He never showed anything that he could hit at this level. He's also doing in Cincinnati in that ballpark in the middle of a non-pennant race in front of nobody. Put him up in a big spot, things could change. And that's another big point. That's another thing with Soto. You're upsetting the apple cart to a degree in the middle of a pennant race. It's very risky. Now, you do it if it's realistic to get Soto and you live with the consequences. But this has every making Soto of a trade that requires a recalibration of of your fabric of your roster, of how you build your roster for many, many years. And the last thing, like I said last year, that you need is Juan Soto with a barren roster and a bad team because the excitement of that deal and what comes of the media hype and the fan hype and the you know sold out stadium the first day he plays at home will go away very quickly when you're when you're losing 95 games because look at Washington they're not exactly drawing uh, big crowds for people to watch Juan Soto as good as he is so I don't think it's going to happen you know that would be yeah perfect world I think it's too complicated I think Josh Bell is more realistic I think that kind of impact hitter uh, is necessary to lengthen this lineup so that you could survive the dead bat at catching that you could not have to rely on Nimmo, McNeil, Pete Alonso, Marte, and Lindor. Because if, if they don't hit, or they, you know, it's almost like they can't go in a slump and they can't take days off because the drop off is significant, because Dom hasn't stepped up, because JD hasn't stepped up. Yorme's a nice player, but he's a component player. There's nothing. I don't want to hear about Daniel Polka and these guys in AAA. They are 4A filler. 
Those are replacement type of guys you hope to get up through a week. Those are not reinforcements for the deadline. Travis Blankenhorn. They're not. If they were on answers, they would have made the roster. They'd be on a big league roster. They're 4A filler. They replace them at filler. Think of May 2019 with Carlos Gomez and, and those guys. I don't want to hear it. This is about winning a championship. Would I be happy with a Drury-Vogelback combo saving some prospect capital? It's not a bad combo. It's better than Dom and JD. Is it Josh Bell? Probably not. You have no idea how these guys, remember, anybody who gets traded at this time of the year is you know uprooted from no man's land, probably bad team, regardless of how good they are, into a pennant race, having their family, their livelihoods uprooted. Some of them who are free agents thinking about where am I going to play next year. No guarantee that they hit on all cylinders day one. Not everybody's Joanna Cespedes who comes and basically is the ultimate deadline acquisition. I don't think it gets better than that. That's best case. That's perfect scenario. That's all the the karma that the Mets were owed for bad luck coming into, you know, eight-week span. And this team is, you know, it's not going to be an easy. The schedule gets a lot easier in September, but it's not easy. And the real difference, and I said this during the, the show last week, when the Braves play a bad team because they hit home runs, they leave no doubt they're going to win that game. When the Mets play a bad team like the Cubs, the games are close. The Padres, they're a good team. What you're seeing in front of you is what a three-game series or a five-game series or a seven-game series is going to look like in October. And no matter whether you have DeGrom and Scherzer or how good your starting pitching is, the other team has pretty good pitching too. And you're going to have to win close games. You're going to have to execute. You're going to have to hit with runners in scoring position. You're going to have to move runners over. Starling Marte gets a couple of big hits yesterday. He struggled mightily against Snell. That's probably a different outcome. It's a game in inches, and it's going to be like that in the postseason. You are watching a postseason series right now. It may not feel like it. You know, to a certain degree, the crowds have been really good, so it is a postseason series feel. So buckle up. This team needs a bat, and whether they go fringy with a Brandon Drury type or a Trey Mancini or a righty compliment to Vogelback, I mean, if they don't do anything and it's J.D. Davis, well, the potential is there, but we're in August. I, I, there's nothing that tells me he's going to turn it around. Nothing unless the specter of the deadline is what's hurt him. There's something not, he's not the same player. Either the league has figured him out, he's not comfortable here, he's he's not recovered from his injury of his hand, whatever it may be. So there will be pain. Juan Soto, get it out of your head. I don't think that's happening. I think I don't even think he's going to get traded by August 2nd. I think that's an off-season move. You've got an ownership change involved there. You have to basically overpay to a high degree and rip your roster apart at the deadline in the middle of a pennant race where today you're in first place. You'll be in some kind of playoff spot a week from now, regardless of whether you win a game or not. It just It's not realistic. It's nothing, you know, it's nothing there that, that, that makes sense. All right, before I get to John Jastrzemski, because I want to get to, to, to JJ. Um, Subway Series. I'm really interested to see the reaction because I still don't know if it's ever, it's definitely not going to be like 97 to 2001. I don't think it'll ever replicate that. Something significant has to happen. Sure, if they actually played a real world series, I'm thinking it would get crazy in this town, but I don't sense the same hatred for the Yankees that there used to be. I think because there's been, more so for the Yankees than the Mets, events or moments, it's not new 
So there's always going to be, well, I remember the Mets' big comeback against the Yankees because they've done that before. I remember that crazy play with Castillo dropping the pop because that happened before. It'll be interesting how Tuesday comes. Um, I think the media is anticipating it. I think we want it to go back. I mean, think about all the things you have in front of you right now. Trade deadline, pennant race with the Mets, uh, division for the Mets, Subway Series. Exciting stuff. This is why we do all the play GM in the offseason when it's icy cold outside and 17 degrees and we're speculating about who the Mets are going to bring in for middle relief with this fifth or sixth starter. We do it for this. Not because we want to play fantasy baseball mogul, because we do it for this, because for these moments. So buckle up and get ready and realize that the next week is going to be really uncomfortable. Be comfortable being uncomfortable. You're going to potentially lose a prospect that you don't want. You have no idea. If Mark Vientos was good and ready, he'd be here. That's it. You, There's nothing that you can glean from those AAA stats because you're not a scout that supersedes what the Mets hierarchy says. There's nothing. There's nothing I could say, nothing. All we could say is it'd be nice, it makes sense. That's where we only have breadcrumbs. That's today's bingo card. You could throw it on the bingo card, guys. Breadcrumbs. We don't have full information. We can make educated opinions, but to sit here and say you know better because you're a blog or do a show like me, you don't. You have an opinion, you throw it out into the universe, and it's one of many. And you know the old saying, opinions are like blank. So I don't want to hear that, well, how can, they, how can the Mets not have Vientos up? There's a reason. And if you're wrong and you don't get a bat because he's not ready, August 2nd, you're done. That's why you see them getting Perez as a backup catcher. Because all these moves that you can make in August, if there was an injury, you got to make it now. What you learn when Billy Epler from the move at Vogelback, they're, they're thinking about now, they're thinking about three years from now, next offseason because he's controllable, the contracts they have to sign. This is exactly what you never got when the Wilpons owned the team because they didn't have cash flow. Now you could manage your team just like the Red Sox have done, just like the Yankees have done, and so on and so forth. You got catching up to do. And the lockout and the chaos of hiring a GM and what's happened over the last couple of years has still been impacting the current team. But I think you have a guy now that really knows what he's doing. And an owner that knows what he's doing and has the cash flow to get it done. So sit back and my message is nothing is absolute. Enjoy the breadcrumbs. Enjoy the speculation. And be comfortable being uncomfortable because between now and August 2nd, there's probably going to be an emergency show. This show might get stale a half hour from now. That's why I'm coming to you early in the day because it doesn't matter anymore. We're at that time of the year where this stuff goes stale. I think that it could still be a listenable show because we talk Subway Series, but away you go. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, John Jastrzemski, the pride of Staten Island for us here. It's not Pete Davidson. It's John Jastrzemski. He is going to talk Subway Series. He is going to talk trade deadline. He is going to talk Juan Soto, Mets, Yankees, tons of stuff and more right after this. So they've done exactly what they could do. And I'll tell you, next week, as I said, is going to be a, a real, real lot of fun to have the Yankees and the Mets. I would expect Mets will still be in first place. 
barring some weird thing this weekend. And both teams will be in first place. They've been in first place all year. The Yankees have been a juggernaut, and it will be exciting. There will be no seats to be had at City Field, and there will be a buzz in that building, and that's what you want. You want a late July game where there's a buzz in a sold-out stadium. That's what it's about, and that's what you're going to get. We're back. Uh, joining me, first time on the uh, Talking Mets podcast. You guys know him from SNY Baseball Night in New York. Also, New York, New York on the Ringer. They don't have a Mike Silva billboard in Times Square, but they had a John Jastrzemski billboard. That's why on this show, you're the pride of Staten Island, not Pete Davidson. When's the last time Pete Davidson had a billboard in Times Square? Did I see? Did I miss it, John? So welcome to the program. Uh, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. I know he's hanging with Kardashian and he ends up on Saturday Night Live, though. So he's got me beat when it comes to might, that. Um, listen, might have you I, beat. I can't believe the guy is as popular as he is. I mean, that's the amazing thing. I, I need to know... <laughs> What exactly is the Pete Davidson secret sauce? Because I want some, to be honest with you. I have to tell you, I grew up in Bensonhurst. My family now lives in Staten Island. I had a lot of friends in Staten Island. I got to tell you, when, in the 90s, when I was in my teenage years, Pete Davidson types were not going to be on Saturday Night Live. They were not going to be on page six. Maybe the borough has come a long way. So when I go over the Verrazano Bridge now, all the way from Long Island. I think of you. I have my parents and Pete Davidson. So I got you a little higher on the pecking order, my friend. There you That's go. That's good to know, Mike. I appreciate that. I got that. Is that. good to know. So you know, I'm, we're relatively the same age. I might be a little bit older. June 16th. Let's do a little history. June 16th, 1997. And I'm going there because the Subway Series is coming up. Oh, I think I know exactly where you're going. Is well, this David I Lickie? remember that day great. I remember that day great. You tell me what you were doing. Tell me, think about that first Subway Series, that first interleague week that that week when Mets and Yankees started playing uh, interleague play, not just each other, but across the board. So super fascinating. I'm growing up in school. I, I think I'm either in the third or the fourth grade. No, it's the end of third grade. Third grade and the fourth grade. But I'm a job. So I, sorry, bro. I had to do it. Go. But remember, this is like my peak Yankee fandom. The Yankees are coming off the 96 World Series. And, you know, it's this amazing turnaround against the Braves, Jimmy Glaritz, Joe Girardi. As a young Yankee fan, you're pounding your chest left and right. Sure. And it was the first time ever where you had the Yankees and the Mets playing in a game that counted for something. So I remember Dave Malicki just absolutely shunned down the Yankees. I want to say Jeter struck out to end the game, if I'm not mistaken. I, thought, yes, I, I think he did. And I just remember the Met fan going to school gave me so much grief. Right. Gave me so much agita. I was like, please, for the love of God, can the <laughs> Yankees win the next two games just to shut them up? I can't yep. take this. And That's David right. Wells won the next game. And then I remember it was an afternoon game, the final game yep. of the series. Yep. And the Yankees were up. I think the Mets tied it in the eighth inning yep. or someone like that. What a balk against David Cohn. It was right. a balk. That's what it was. Yep. It was a stupid balk. But then Tino walked it off against Johnny Franco. And, and I'll tell you what. What I do remember about that was the intensity. And that's really what marked uh, the Subway Series, I thought, where I call the golden age of the Subway Series from like 97 to 2001. It was fresh. It was new. You had the actual Subway Series. Every year, I mean, at least for the Mets, it was a chance to get postseason juice going and kind of get their, you know, practice for their chops for the real postseason. The Yankees, it was an annoyance. But before the days of Twitter, you know, you talked about being in school and the trash talk. 
I remember working at the Brooklyn Public Library, and the day after that first game, security guard's a Yankees fan. One of the patrons there, retired Navy guy, Mets fan. Oh, Steinbrenner's going to fire Tory. But these were real conversations and real stuff that would go on. Think about in the world today, firing over a loss in June for a Subway Series game. That means nothing. But that was a real conversation pre-Twitter right there. You, you lose a little bit now in the cesspool of Twitter. You know, it's a good tool, bad tool, but you lose that. But that's kind of Twitter back in 1997. It is crazy to think about. It is crazy to think about George at his peak acting like a lunatic, even though I think he was a lot more tame sure. by the time we hit 97, 98. But yeah, there was always that quick trigger figure for sure. Um, I've always felt with the Subway Series. I like it. I- I'm always going to be a fan of it. It's clearly not what it was. I'm curious to see if this year with both sure. teams hungry, with both teams having gaudy records, if it's going to bring out that intensity. I've always said, though, Mike, they're better off alternating home sites once a year. I think it That's, would be they so used to much do that. better. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and the reason is it would make the yearly event at Yankee Stadium an event. It would sure. make the, the, the two of the three games at City Field. I, if you only play once a year, you probably got to do three games. You can't get away with this two-and-two home-and-home nonsense. But if you alternated, right, and you didn't play a six, and you basically said, hey, guess what? Once a year, it's your turn to host the Subway Series. Then the following year, you host the Subway Series. Kind of makes it yeah. a little bit more special. I think they'll they'll complain about the gate. One of the teams, oh, of course they do, will. They want the attendance. Yes, or do a week. You know, maybe you do it leading up to the All Star break or right after the All Star break. You do the two and the two, and like think about 2014. I think they did it with a. Uh, they had the two at City Field, then right away the two at Yankee Stadium. You kind of make it a New York week. You solve the gate issue. They lose a gate each, but you still get it every year. I think it would spruce it up. I mean, obviously, money's going to drive this thing. I, I personally, after 07, 08, it started to get, and it wasn't just because the Mets went kind of in a tailspin. The Yankees won the World Series, but even when the Mets won, won a pennant in 2015, the Yankees were in the wild card. It just didn't feel the same. But last September, maybe it was September 11th, maybe it was the chippiness of Lindor and the three home runs. I said, all right, maybe something's starting to happen here. Uh, Steve Cohen is not Steinbrenner. Hal's not his father. I don't sense the hatred either on the fan bases either on either side. I, I don't sense the players. There's no Clemens Piazza. There's no, hey, you know, the Mets trying to earn respect. There's no Bobby Valentine. Um, there's no larger than life person. I mean, Judge, but he's he, he's not Jeter. He's not, you know, those guys. It's It's weird. I don't know how to explain it. It's different. And maybe it's hard for me to explain. I totally get that. I mean, look. Peak Subway Series, Jeter became very hateable. He's killing the Mets. He's winning every year. He's this golden boy. Those Yankee teams, all they did was win. You respected them, but I can understand. Listen, you know, root for them. Very easy to start to hate them. This Yankee team hasn't won in over a decade plus. And you look up and down the Yankee roster, for the most part, Mike, there aren't a whole lot of guys that you're like, man, I can't stand him. Judge is easy guy to root for. Stanton. I think he's an easy guy to root for. You want to tell me Cole's a little quirky and he can rub you the wrong way? Fine. I even think he's a even after the All Star game, though. Listen yeah, to the All Star I mean, game. I think like, if you hear Cole speak, yep. you kind of get into his brain and some of the nuances yep. and whatnot, and he yep. actually comes across as a little bit likable. And on a Mets yep. side, how do you not love Scherzer? How do you not love Alonzo? For all the Yankee fans out there, how do you not love Buck Showalter running the team, even though he made a mistake inside of his sure. game, which I'm sure we'll get sure. to. But, like, there is a lot of likability amongst both of these teams right now. And in some way, Mike, I almost think you're going to need 
a World Series between sure. the two where, hey, something's on the line here and the loser is going to be feeling absolutely sick to their stomach. That might be the way to really rekindle it. It's interesting because I always felt in 2000, uh, the Mets, that was like at that point, like you kind of wanted the Subway Series. You wanted the World Series to yourself. And like, all right, oh, we got to yeah, play these I guys. Would. I would, and the Yankees sure. didn't want anything to do with it because they were like, if we lose to these guys, we're never going to hear, gonna the, hear end the end of it. it. it would have. It, it right. sounds crazy to say because yep. three out of four titles, Mike, we're never going to see that again in our lifetime in baseball. No. It's too hard. Very hard. Playoffs, the, the parody is never going to happen. That team would have won three or four. So if they was to the Mets, hey, you still won three or four. No, 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 no. It no. would have made 96, 98, and 99 for the Yankees feel hollow. And that's why the Yankees are like, well, we can't we, we can't lose this series right. to the Mets. Can't do it. Right. I mean, the attendance even, if you look the last couple of years, you see ballparks, regular season, weekday, normal attendance. It didn't matter whether it was on a Wednesday or a Sunday. Those places were packed. They had energy. I have not seen that. So I think City Field next week, first chance. Very interesting how the attendance will be. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at the Yankees attendance is down about five, six thousand people from pre-COVID. Mets are about the same, maybe a thousand people more. Baseball attendance has picked up, obviously, on the weekends a little bit since the weather got warm. But I'm curious if there's more to it, because we always talk about baseball and the health of the game and I think that there was like the least amount of all-star viewers this week. Uh, there's a lot of things to that. I'm curious, uh, you know, I haven't been to the stadium. Uh, haven't really, I do a lot of things virtually, of course, but it doesn't seem like there's packed houses night and night out like there used to be. I'm curious what this next week brings. Yeah, I mean, listen, some of that is a COVID uh, after effect. Aftermath. Mm-hmm. You look at the first month or two months of last year. I mean, yeah, nobody had like 5,000 people in the stands and, you know, like even at the beginning of this year, all right, you have opening day, it's packed for the Yankees and the Mets. And then April and May in New York, it can get icky, man. I mean, you could have some, you could have some beautiful days, but you can have those nights where it's like 50 or 55 degrees. And you know what it is, Mike? I think we, you know, kind of romanticize like even the eighties and the nineties thinking about all oh, the, you know, the, the, the growth of baseball and right. where the sport was right. and its popularity and whatnot. But you go and watch back clips of April and May games at Chase Stadium. Empty. And Stadium. Yep. They empty. are empty. I mean, Don Mattingly the attendance the ball numbers. nobody. It, yep. Now it, I would say 99, 2000 for the Yankees is kind of when that shift happened. Cause I remember when I was going as a kid, we would go 90, 98. Like you went midweek game. You can get good seats. I'm not talking like decent seats. You can get good seats walking up day of, and you were never going to have a problem. I think we discovered in like 1999, oh, man, like it's a, it's a June night game against the Angels, and this place is packed because, you know, there was that Yankee fever. And from a Mets right. standpoint, there was that Piazza right. fever. But, look, I don't think you'll ever have attendance numbers the way you did Last couple of years, the old Yankee Stadium. Last year or two at Chase Stadium. Like, I, I just don't think there's too much to do. There's too many distractions. People can do whatever the hell they want. They can live in their own little world. Yeah. Subway Series, I think the place is going to be electric Tuesday and Wednesday. That's my gut feel. So. I'm going Tuesday night. I think it's going to be electric. Yeah, that will be interesting. John Jastrzemski, you guys know him. Uh, SNY has been on WFAN. The Ringer does a great podcast, New York, New York. Uh, let's get to this Juan Soto stuff, because this also connects to both teams. 
Uh, this is very NBA-esque. I think this is a complicated trade for both teams. For the Yankees, there's judge implications. You're asking to rip up your farm system and do planning because everybody forgets, the fans forget, you take Soto on, whether the Mets or Yankees, yes, you could afford to pay him. But it's not, even Hal Steinbrenner and Cohen are not going to have limitless budgets. You pay this guy $50 million, you have to say, okay, what does this mean in three years, four years, five years? And you're figuring that all out while you're trying to win a pennant, while you're trying to win a championship. And you got the Nationals basically holding a proverbial uh, you know, gun to your head saying, hey, I want this, I want this, and I'll walk away if I don't even think you're interested. Uh, I don't think it could happen now for those reasons. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't see it happening uh, at all because I just think it's complicated for a contender. Now, a team out of the race that wants to get involved in this different ballgame. What are your thoughts on that? So I agree with you. I think Soto ultimately gets dealt in the offseason. I don't think he ends up getting dealt between now and August 2nd. And it is super complicated from a Yankee and a Met perspective. Because, look, you can make the argument easily from the Yankee standpoint. Hey, take a run at it this year. You're all in. Go get Juan Soto, play with Aaron Judge, John Carlos Stanton, boom, 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 and try to win a World Series. But the reality of the situation is you can't keep both of those guys. It's just no. not financially and, and possible. And from a baseball standpoint, Soto's the better play, but Clearly. then there's emotion. There's Clearly. emotion. But there's, there's emotion. There's box office where the Yankees have this tie-in with Aaron Judge that you cannot overlook. He's the face of their team. All the kids look up to him. The 99 T-shirts, the whole deal. And then there's the clubhouse factor. You know, you're taking Aaron Judge, who is the MVP of the Yankees this year. He is the leader of the Yankees. He is the dude of the Yankees. And you're basically telling him in the middle of a year, hey, guess what? We're probably not re-signing you. Like, I wonder how that would kind of be handled by not only Aaron Judge, but a lot of guys in that Yankee clubhouse. They can say all the right things. They can say, hey, we're going to win, blah, 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 blah. But in the back of everybody's mind, they're going to be like, oh, crap. I don't think Judge coming back here next year. Yep. And that's why I don't – if the Yankees made a move like that, it would happen in the offseason. Like, you want to tell me Aaron Judge walks. He goes to San Francisco, which I still think is unlikely, by the way. But he walks, and then, boom, the, the Yankees trade for him in the offseason, and that's the guy they get to replace Aaron Judge. All right, we could have that conversation. It's not happening now. From a Mets standpoint, I think Cohen would absolutely pay him. I think the problem is twofold. One, thinking about three and four years down the road like you just alluded to. The other thing is this. I don't care if you're selling the Nationals. How of your Nationals ownership do you say with a straight face, I'm going to let this generational talent, this guy who is one of, if not, you know, the best hitter in all of baseball, I'm going to trade him to the Mets or the Braves, let's say, and I got to see mm-hmm. him in my division for the next decade. If one the thing package is good. there. Well, right. but, but to me, package the package has got to be beyond good. Like, sure. it, it, I'm weighing that as a factor. Like sure. that is, I'm not saying, hey, like if we're splitting hairs, you know, Cardinals, Mets, where am I sending them? I'm sending them the Cardinals. Like, uh, yep. I, I don't want to see this guy 18 times right. a year. I think ownership will think about that. And I think we also have to, for both teams, look at this $300 million number. Because as you see, Scherzer's getting over 40. Uh, Soto, guys like that are going to want to get over 40. Uh, DeGrom is going to want to get over 40 judge is going to look, he's looking at Soto. And I know it's not a comp because of the age he's going to say, if that guy's getting 45, 50, I'm going to want to be in that ballpark. You cannot feel the competitive team with a $300 million payroll with those kind of players. So if we're at NBA level 
Like Scott Boris was saying to John Heyman and Joel Sherman, well, well, NBA players get 60 million. Yeah, there's 12 guys on a roster and you could fill in a lot around them. And that's a problem in the NBA. You bring in a big guy and now, well, who's around me? In baseball, it's not as a problem, but there's only so much filler you can do. And that's when you have a team. And this was a problem for the Mets. You go back to the Subway Series at the latter part, 06, 07, 08. Great 8 to 10 on the roster. Horrible at times, 20 to 25. Forget about 30 and beyond. And they, they fell apart, even with all those stars. You're going to see that again. And unless both of these teams say, hey, I'm willing to go to 350, 400, how can you even get involved in multiples of these stars? How um, can I totally get that. The only caveat is it's Juan Soto. And he is that special. And he is that good. And he is that young. I understand that point entirely. And you also got to wonder, are these salaries just going to be going up across the board where the payrolls for the Yankees, the Mets, right. the Dodgers, are they going to sure. be skyrocketing to levels that we could have never imagined? And my goodness, well, what does that mean for the rest of the sport then? I mean, listen, you know there are going to be teams that are willing to up the ante and willing to spend. And then you got some teams who are just incapable. Like, they, like the Oakland A's. The Oakland A's should disband as far as I'm concerned. Get them to Vegas. If you're going to put a $40 million payroll team on the field, then you don't belong. That's they, it's Less really than Max Scherzer. You should not own that. a team. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, too, where we, we know he's a great player. But the pressure that you've seen with A-Rod, with Lindor, anybody who's had a big contract coming here, could you imagine him coming here, making 50, the first hit 50, let's say, uh, let's say he gets 15 years. That's $600 million. We don't know how he's going to handle this town. I mean, A-Rod was every bit the generational talent that this guy was. And look at his transition. Still good numbers. Does he realize what he's getting into? I think he does. And to a certain degree, Boris was like, well, I didn't want that leaked. It's clear the Nationals probably leaked that, that, that climb. Because now he's like, so I'm hearing that the, 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 the agents say, well, he wants to go to the ballpark, talk about baseball. He doesn't want to talk about money. That's all you're going to hear once you get that deal. Does he understand that? Because if he doesn't, is this the right place for him? I think his personality can handle it personally, just like watching his demeanor. And he's a very confident guy. He played brilliantly in the World Series a couple of years ago. I mean, he's going up against two potential Hall of Fame pitchers, Verlander and Cole for the Astros. They couldn't get him out. I think ultimately, Mike, he'd be able to handle it. But yeah, that's, that's a question for anybody. Signing a big contract, coming to New York, taking on the pressure of handling those things. Sometimes you don't know until you see the guy in the microscope, in the pressure cooker, because it's different. People could try to say it's not, it's baseball. No, 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 no. It's different when you play here. And as we wrap up here, John, because I know you got to run, Mets and Yankees, some rumors the Mets are honing in on Josh Bell. They already had to give up a really useful piece for Daniel Vogelback. I mean, think about that nobody's handing stuff over to these teams to make them better. I think the fans have to understand you're worried about prospect number 12, and that's what you're going to try to hold on to. Uh, You ain't getting anybody. There's no more in the old days where they throw Raul Mondesi to the Yankees just for money. Teams really don't want to do that. These GMs are smart. I mean, look at Pittsburgh and Ben Sherrington. They were not going to trade a guy that was a free agent six months ago for anything less than a a reliever that may be a, a late inning guy at some point. This is going to get expensive. There's going to be pain in the era of prospects. You know, it drives me crazy because everybody thinks they're a scout. They're not. People ask me, what do you think of the MLB draft? I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, you, the you kid's 18. Does, does, does anybody know? I mean, I mean the, aside from guys who work from like baseball perspectives, 
and cover college or high school baseball. So. For me to sit there and say, I know what you're getting with some of these. Oh, this is guys, Jose Altuve. I'm like, okay, hopefully. Yeah. There you go. You say a prayer. I mean, the one thing I'd say, look, is you don't want to be a prospect hoarder if you're either one of these teams. Right. The Mets have a window to win. They have all the pitchers. It's time to go. They know it's time to go. From a Yankees standpoint, they've been knocking at the door the last five or six years. So there are certain guys who are untouchables for you. Like, from a Yankee perspective, I don't think they're trading Volpe under any circumstance. They didn't Even, sign a but big for Soto, for Soto well, that's a different to. That's a different story. I think Soto, if we're talking Soto, you can't look at any of your prospects and say, oh, they're, they're untouchable. Right. But Soto, anybody, and that goes Alvarez for the Mets, that goes Volpe for the Yankees. They're on the, 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 the word untouchable is gone as far as that goes. I'm talking the Yankees trying to make a move for Castillo or the Mets trying to make a move for Josh Bell. Like, uh, you know, just throwing those two examples out there. Right. You're going to have to give up a prospect or two. Like the Yankees probably going to have to give up, I don't know, Peraza. I, I don't know who the guy would be for sure. the Mets if yep. they're giving up Bell because the Nationals, Rizzo don't like the Mets, and the Mets don't right. like Rizzo, so there's a little bad blood there <laughs> to be with. Um, so you throw that in, look, might be a little bit of pain in the short term. It's worth it, though. You go and win a World Series, and Josh Bell or Louis Castillo is instrumental, you ain't going to think twice. John, nobody – here's what I keep telling fans. Nobody wants Steve Cohen to win in this league. They don't. But do you want a wealthy guy worth 15-plus billion, Bobby Axelrod, quote-unquote, that has everything that's demonized in today's society – to come into a league where there's been these guys who have been there 40 years, work their way up, making no money and eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches as scouts. They want to help him. Now, even though he earned it and he did his, you know, whatever you want to think about him, do they want to help him? I keep telling everybody he's not likable, even though Mets fans and New Yorkers like him. And I think he comes across really good in public deep down. He's very, very wealthy. And he, barged into the club remember this is an old boys network now how well i think you're getting that from i think you're going to get that from ownership of certain teams i don't think you necessarily get it from the gms who are the ivy league types who kind of all buddy buddy with one another and i'm sure epler is well connected because he's been around forever that's and he's likable and i gotta tell you epler's very i've been so impressed about how he handles things he doesn't give you a lot he doesn't speak a lot but when he speaks he's polite he's direct He's actually in the shadows a lot of ways. Sandy Alderson does a lot of the PR stuff. Well, it's Sandy and Buck being the point yep. man that he is. You have yep. a very hands-on type of manager, which is a good thing. So last thing, uh, Subway Series, what are your predictions going into the rest of the year? You you feel Mets, obviously, not pinch hitting McNeil. You brought that up. Tough loss to San Diego. Both teams have a game before the Subway Series. Uh, I think if I think the Mets will get a bat, and I think they'll be okay. I don't know if they could win the division because I think the Braves – are the power factor against bad teams. The Mets leave doubt that they win these close games. They probably will, but there's doubt. The Braves bludgeon bad teams. And I think they're going to struggle against good teams in the postseason because I think they're a, a, kind of like a, a the old Yankees, home run or nothing, and that kind of dies down. Uh, the Yankees are going to be a number one seed. I don't think there's any doubt there. Houston's really the question. What do you see? What are you looking for the next you know six to eight weeks? What's John Jastrzemski going to be focused on when it comes to baseball here in New York? All right, it starts with the Mets and the Braves. And I have been very confident all year that the Mets are going to win this division. You uh, jinxed them. You said the division was over back in well, May. I, I, thought, I, thought, I thought it was, to be I honest. Said, oh, no, I was down on, I'm going to tell you why. I thought I was down on the Braves. And I was worried about the Braves because the Braves, World Series hangover, 
you know, a lot of things went right for them last year. I'm like, yeah, maybe it's not their year. Maybe they're going to struggle to get in the playoffs. Couldn't have been more wrong. The Braves are really good. Now, I think the Mets, in order to win the division, two things got to happen. One, they got to get a serious impact bat. I don't know who that guy is yet. Bell's the name that's been thrown out there. Don't be surprised if the Red Sox sell and the Red Sox, JD Martinez. Martinez, who would be. But they don't have a lot, John. They don't. I looked at their roster yesterday. Other than JD Martinez, Bogarts is not going anywhere, right? They don't have a ton of pitching either. He is a free agent. He is a free agent at the end of the year. So if they come to the Lindor, we can't (laughs) resign him. I don't think Bogarts and the Mets are necessarily a play. Um, but you could you could easily sell me on one of their bullpen arms and yeah. and Martinez or yeah. what about a guy like Avaldi? I thought the Mets were going to be in for a starter. Now I'm not nearly certain they're going to be in for a starter. Yep. But look, the deadline is going to make a huge impact on whether or not they can hold off the Atlanta Braves. And then, I mean, the month of August is going to be awesome because they're basically playing the Braves like every other day. They Nine days in August. Yep. So like yep. that. That that stretch right there is going to be make or break if you want to be hosting and off for the best of three, or you could be in, I don't know, hosting San Diego. You could be playing the Cardinals and sure. the best of three. Listen, I don't Anything care if you have Scherzer, DeGrom, whoever. It's a best of three. You don't want to be in a best of three. Look at the San Diego games. You play San Diego in a best of three. You got you Darvish on the other side. You got Musgrove on the other side. Here's why I'll throw you why you should be optimistic in the Yankees. I'm going to give you a little Mike Silva you know, goofy Twitter thing. I used to call it the Yankee bump. And I remember when I was on the old Champions Radio ESPN out in Long Island, I had a whole segment on. Yankees get a guy that's dead zone. They put the pinstripes on. All of a sudden, I'm like, Jose Vizcaino comes to mind. Glenn well, Allen. Matt Carbon has done the and That's where I'm going. It was dead. I was ready to bury the Aaron Small factor. And then this guy comes over, and I'm like, well, the Mets kind of used that guy as a DH. He was on the... So now, will Daniel Vogelback get the Steve Cohen bump? Not so sure. But we know that the Yankees, for the first time in a long time, John, have gotten the Aaron Small bump. So that's why I'll leave you with why you should be optimistic about that. Yeah, I mean, listen, they're going to win the division. I don't know if they're going to hold off the Astros for home field, though, because Houston is right there. This schedule is a lot easier than the Yankees. And they're they're really, really good. Dusty Baker's a good manager. Dusty knows how to get the most out of a team. Alvarez is an absolute stud. You can't pitch to the guy. He's flat out ridiculous. And they're pitching. Up and down from the Renaissance here with Verlander to your Quiddy and Javier and Valde. I mean, they got guys going that they could throw. How about Montero? Finally living up to the billing. Took him seven years, but now pitching out of the Astro bullpen. He's been I, know. Well, I know. Well, Yankees need a starter. I think they'll find a reliever. Cashman, you, you can have your critiques for Cashman. He's brilliant at finding a reliever nobody knows and turns him into a household name. I mean... Great, great Look job. Look at Clay Holmes. Clay Holmes, nobody in New York been doing ago, it like, for years, knew who he John. was. And now he's right. one of the best relievers in baseball. So I think the Yankees get a brand-name starter. I think they'll get a bat to the outfield to put Gallo out of his misery, please. Um, and I think they'll get a reliever or two. Probably guys will be like, eh, who are these guys? And they'll probably have success. But again, for them, it's right. judged by October and beating the Houston Astros. We'll see if they can do that. Until you get a billboard on Highland Boulevard, you haven't made it, all right? Yeah, man? you know, Times like Square, I, the Midtown Manhattan, right <laughs> by Madison Square Garden, uh, but one, you know, overlooking the Gothels, or one over on Highland Costco, Boulevard. My parents, live, yet. my parents live over by the Costco over there, by the Staten Island Mall. I need to see something as I drive. Oh, right by house. a lot of red golf course. Okay. Yeah, 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 right yeah, yeah, I know you're over there. 
<laughs> Buddy, thanks so much. Enjoy your Sunday. Let's do this again. Uh, the Ringer, anything else you got going on you want the fans to know No, you about? got it. Ringer, New York, New York. We got our gambling show. We Stop. got SLI. We're everywhere. Stop being a mush. Okay, let hey, listen, be the mush. I bet, I bet the Mets to win the, the division. Thing. I'm invested. So <laughs> right. my overs are looking good this year. Just saying. Just saying. Be well, buddy. Thanks, thanks so dude. much. I appreciate, appreciate it. And that's John Jastrzemski. You guys know him, SNY. That was a fun segment. I always enjoy new guests. And uh, John has done a great story uh, and success he's had uh, on WFAN doing overnights. Uh, that was fun. All right, let's take a quick break. Wrap up your listening to the Talk Mets podcast. We're back with more right after this. We love talking about the next generation of Mets players on the Talking Mets podcast. One that excites all of us is top prospect Francisco Alvarez. Keith Rad, broadcaster for the Brooklyn Cyclones, shared his experience covering the future Mets catcher and a special moment that should excite us all. It's pretty dumb crazy the type of attention this kid gets when he's just taking swings at 5 o'clock in the afternoon every single day. We had our biggest wow moment of the year, like you said, how deep our ballpark is. But our batter's eye is, again, 412 feet uh, away, and he hit it to the right of the batter's eye, like dead center. I've I've never seen that before. I mean, we've had uh, rehabbers, you know, Robbie Cano, Todd Frazier recently, uh, with us and they'll even in BP these guys have a tough time hitting it out and Alvarez hit one just to the right of the batter's eye so far a shot I'll, I'll never forget listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com alright we're back final thoughts uh, want to thank John Jastrzemski again for joining me uh, today Great conversation. Always good to get new guests to the show. Uh, wow. You know, third grade on the first Subway series. Oh, talk about making me feel old. But anyway, uh, I shared that quick story. I, I got to tell you, uh, I hope there's part of me that wants it to get back to where it was because it was so much fun. Especially nothing was more satisfying in the early days of the Subway series than going into Yankee Stadium, 60 to 70 percent of the crowd being against you the ghosts and the goblins and all this stuff that the old, especially the old stadium brings and winning a tough game, getting big outs late. There was so many heartbreaking moments, whether it be a Braden Looper blown save, a Benito blown, Benito, Benito Benitez blown save, Castillo drop pop up. I always remember, I tell the story I always tell you, remember Brandon Bruni? So I went to Trenton to cover the Trenton Thunder and Bruni's rehab start for my old nybaseballdigest.com when the day after that K-Rod dropped the ball. Now, back then, Twitter, very new, very new. So it wasn't like you could go there, take a video, shoot it out on Twitter, and within seconds, people would grab news. So you had a little bit of a cottage industry where covering minor league baseball wasn't wasn't being done by everybody. It was still in the infancy. So Bruni starts taking shots at K-Rod. You probably remember they had a fight uh, the next day on the Sunday in the outfield because Bruni was doing the 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 rehab and he says I hate he basically said I'm paraphrasing I probably have the audio maybe have the audio somewhere couldn't happen to a nicer guy and he does like the little you know K Rod used to point to the sky and the little jig and all that stuff and it was big news I ran and I remember even I texted Matt Cerrone of Mets blog and say hey I got something here and it wound up getting out I got no credit for it but I was like one of the first to send it out I think I remember even reaching out to Ruben Adam Ruben was so no Adam Ruben was at Adam Ruben formerly of the the Daily News and then was he at the news? I think he was still at the Daily News back then. I don't know if it was ESPN New York yet. Maybe ESPN New York. And I went to Ruben, who was there. He used to always cover Trenton Ruben when the B-Mets were there. So I think it was 
the BMATs and the Thunder, I'm kind of jumping on this story, and Ruben left before the end of the interview when it was just BS time with the player, and that's when Bruni came out and said this stuff about K-Rod. So I ran to Ruben, I said, hey man, you, you missed this, and I shared with him what I had. So the, the point is, is that, you know, there was always that animosity between the two teams, and that had my little part on it with the Brandon Bruni thing. So there's all sorts of little things going on. The teams didn't like each other. I think after 09 and when the Yankees won the championship and the Mets went downward post-Manaya, and then Alderson came in, and there was this, you know, uh, post-Madoff Mets purgatory, and then they popped up with, gen- you know, the new generation of pitchers and went to the World Series, and the Yankees were kind of in their version of a rebuild, which is just kind of like eight, low 80s, mid 80s, play for the wild card, figure out these contracts like A-Rod and Teixeira coming off. It lost its juice, and then the Mets had their issues and slid down when the Yankees popped back up. So these were fun for the fans to kind of have some, if you want to call it bragging rights, but at this point, the Yankees have entrenched themselves, I think, with a couple of generations of fans. I mean, look at J.J. He was third grade. And the Mets have the opportunity at a couple of times to take over the city, and they just never really grasp it. Now I think this whole idea of taking over the city, I don't think it's realistic because you have two choices. You have two very wealthy owners. I don't see the Yankees falling off into the abyss like they did 1990, 91, that kind of time. I think under Cohen, the Mets, uh, especially because they're really trying to build up, we'll see how the farm system develops. But they may have a dip before they have that consistency because if these prospects don't work out and then Scherzer and DeGrom and these guys get old, you might have to have that take a step back to go forward at some point in the next three years. I think Buck's contract, the Mets are going to be good, and I think they're going to push under especially the Scherzer contract to do whatever it takes to win within reason, and then, you know, at that point, we'll see where their prospects are at. This draft plays into that to a certain degree, and away you go. So the point is, let's see how the Subway Series develops over the next few years, because both teams are good, and uh, and maybe the juice will come back. I think if you're going to get it back, you're going to get it back over the next two to three years. Does it matter? Again, it's another game on the schedule the Mets have to win. They got the Braves right up there, you know what. And here's what I'll say about the the, the division as we wrap up. Don't get too crazy if they fall out of first place and act like the season's over. Because if you look at historical pennant races that the Mets have been in for the division, 85, 87, 89, 90, go back to the traditional pre-wild card when the division meant something. And here it doesn't mean as much because you could. But do you want to play the three-game set against the Padres and deal with Darvish and Musgrove because they're neutralizing a lot of your advantage there? Or do you want to sit for a week and wait for those guys to beat each other up? There's there's ways where that actually winning those three-game series might propel you and give you an advantage, especially early in the division series against a team that's been sitting. But again, it's a risk. It's another three games that are up in the air that reduce the probability of you winning a championship. Um, 1990, Mets, Pirates. Pirates went way ahead of the Mets in June. Mets came storming back, got ahead. Pirates wound up winning the division. You know, Cardinals in 87, Mets stormed back, got close, pushed back. 85, I think they were all jockeying for position through most of the year. Cardinals won at the end. Uh, You know, 88, Mets win going away, but the Pirates closed the gap and I think got to within a couple of games uh, and always were hanging around. So it's not over if they fall out of first. It's not what you want. 
But like I say, it's like an NBA game. Get way ahead, team comes storming back. You make a couple quick, easy, you know, big buckets to push them back. Then they may go ahead. It's about big moments. And no matter whether you're in first or out of first, going into the Atlanta series, you have to win those games in August against the Braves. JJ was 100% right. Was it, you know, nine games in eight days or seven days in August? That's really where the division is going to be won or lost. Or there's a third option. The division stays where it is because they beat each other up and pretty much break even to a certain degree. And then it's a matter of whose schedule, you know, the Braves get a little bit of tougher schedule later and the Mets get a softer schedule. But you know, historically, that doesn't matter. You've been in situations where you've seen the Marlins ruin the Mets season and the Nats ruin the Mets season. You've seen it. So a lot, you know, to happen. Embrace being uncomfortable. Embrace the pennant race. This is why we do this stuff. We tend to, as a fan base, this fan base particularly, get miserable with competition, get miserable with stress. This is why you do it. Maybe there hasn't been enough of these where you have the hardened exterior that comes with being in a pennant race and playing big games. But Yankees, Red Sox, back and forth. Look how many times the Yankees now, again, the loser would have a wild card spot. But that was a one game wild card, right? So there was a lot on the line there too. And they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And ultimately it came down to Yankees, Red Sox. This is going to come down to Mets Braves. And it bothers you because you hate the Braves because of what's been going on since 1991. But give them credit. They've they've built this annuity business, so to speak. This annuity, you know, except for that little dip for a few years, they've been a consistent like death in taxes when it comes to a baseball standpoint. All right, that's it. I want to thank John Jastrzemski for joining me. You can check him out at John underscore Jastrzemski on Twitter. You can check me out all the time on the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Enjoy the game this coming night. And real quick before I go, a little little special vault coming to you the day before the Subway Series. So stay tuned. There'll be another podcast tomorrow at some point. A little special vault. I don't want to spoil the surprise. Check me out on Twitter at Mike Silver Media. I'll tell you more. Until then, take care. For the park and greet the Mets Hot dogs, green grass, all out of shade Guaranteed to have a heck of a day Because those Mets are really rocking that ball Hitting those home runs over the wall Jersey, Jersey, Brooklyn, Queens
credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.